November 13th. And we all and we have we will have an all church Thanksgiving dinner on November 16th. They're looking for one more person to cook a turkey. If you're able to help with that, please call the church office. And now, while we have a few minutes, let's greet our neighbors before we have our call to worship. This time I invite all those who are able to stand to please join me in the call to worship. The call to worship this morning is taken from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him, graciously give us all things. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is Christ Jesus our Lord. Now we ask that you would remain standing and sing worship.
go back to the call of worship. Can we be like Paul and say that I am convinced that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I admit there's times I have such a hard time accepting that love. So my prayer is often, God, help my unbelief to accept your love, that there is nothing, nothing that will keep me from you, that will keep me from your presence, Lord God, because you love us, you lavish your love upon us. His praise be forever on our lips.
Amen. You may be seated. Today is All Saints Sunday. It's the day that we remember our loved ones who've gone before us to be with the Lord this past year. And I can't help but think, uh, again, just to reiterate that call to worship from this morning. Romans 8 reminds us that not even death can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Today is a, can be a day of grief, of course, as we remember our loved ones who have passed away. But it's also a reminder of the hope that we have in Christ. That, that through his death and resurrection, he has conquered death for us. So that not even death is the end. That, that, that death is the last enemy that will be conquered. And that one day all of God's people will be gathered together in his presence. And that we will sing his praise forevermore. Again, All Saints Day is, a remi- is actually November 1st. We always celebrate it the first Sunday after November 1st. It's a remembrance established by the church to remember all the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who've departed from this life and have gone to be with the Lord. At First Church, we celebrate All Saints Day by reading the names of those who passed away over the past year. White carnations are on the altar in their memory, and any family members that are here today are invited to take one home with you after the service. It's also an opportunity for us to reflect on God's forgiveness and salvation. We are saved in Christ and in him alone. Not only do we give thanks for and celebrate the memory of our loved ones, we also give thanks for God and his salvation made possible through Jesus Christ. Jesus went before us into death in order to conquer death, and he goes before us into eternal life to open eternal life to all who believe in him. Revelation 7, 9 through 10 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God. So let's give thanks for these brothers and sisters in Christ, to whom God has granted rest from their labors. Joyce Hovey. Lee Kuhlman, Robert Wilkins, Helen Wellman, Joseph Lunsford, Catherine Trollicky, David Eversman, Virginia Height, David Feldwich, Don Maurer, and Lee Ketter Heinrich. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, who holds in your hands the souls of the righteous, we give thanks and praise for all the generations of the faithful who served you in godliness and love and who dwell forever in your presence. We bless you for all who have enriched this world with truth and beauty, who have labored in their service of their fellows and devoted themselves to you and your church. We bless you for all near and dear to us, for our fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, for those who've helped and defended and loved and cherished us. Grant that all the good we have seen and known in them may continue to inspire and guide us, that we may always love them and hollow their memory, and that when we have fulfilled our time on earth, we may have a part with them in your heavenly kingdom through Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you also, Lord God, for the salvation that you've revealed through your Son, Jesus Christ. As we reflect on the the passing of those that we love, we're also reminded that our hope is not in this world, but that our hope is grounded in you and the salvation that you have made possible through your son's death and resurrection. 
We thank you, Lord God, that you save us not because of our good works, but based completely on your grace and your goodwill. And so we praise you and thank you for your salvation this day, because that is our hope. And that is our confidence. And that is what comforts us both in life and in death. This day, we also want to pray for other needs in our community, in our church. We think especially of this day for the many children in our community and and around this nation that are dealing with RSV right now. Um, We just pray for those that are sick, that they would be well. We pray, Lord, for that they would be able to breathe easily and that if they are receiving treatment, that it would be effective in, in healing their bodies, Lord. We pray for all those that are sick and in need of healing this day. We pray that you would that you would work through ordinary means such as doctors and medications and procedures. And we also ask that you'd work through extraordinary means, Lord, to bring about their healing. Because we know that whether it's ordinary means or extraordinary means, all healing comes from you. And so we ask for your healing hand to be upon those who are sick. Lord, we also pray for our nation and our communities, our states. Um, This week is election day, and so we pray for wisdom and discernment for those who vote. We pray, Lord, that for elected officials that will serve, that they will make decisions that are for the good of this nation and our communities, and that honor you and bring glory to you, Lord. We also ask us that even as we go to vote, that you help us to remember that our hope lies not in the kingdoms of this world, but in the kingdom of God. That even when all nations pass away, your kingdom will endure forever. Because, Lord Jesus, you are king of kings. You are above all earthly and heavenly authority and power. And that all things were created in you and through you and for you. And so, Lord, help us to set our hope not on the things of this world, but ultimately on you and your kingdom and your salvation. Lord God, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. I want to this time invite the children forward for children's chat. So you guys can come on forward at this time. Thank you. And you guys get to sit there. That way all the people out here get to see you and your faces instead of just me and my face. Because you're a lot cuter than me. All right. So, we have been learning about Paul, right? Yeah. And Paul has been living in Ephesus, but it's about time for him to move on. And Paul has been in Ephesus telling people about Jesus and how awesome Jesus is and that if they invite Jesus and the Holy Spirit into their heart, that they will live it on in eternity in heaven. So Paul is getting ready to pass the baton. Does this look like a baton? 
Do you, it is a toilet paper. No, it is a paper towel tube. But at any rate, do you know, have you ever watched the Olympics when you have seen people run around in a circle and they hand off a stick to each other and then the next person keeps running? Yes. Well, it happens. It's called a relay race. And they are handing the baton to the next person to run the race, okay? So if I hand the baton to Courtney and Courtney takes it and she's going to run a lap and then she's going to pass it off to somebody else. Not me, pass it off to somebody. There you go. Okay, that is kind of like what Paul is doing here in our scripture today. He is passing the baton on to the people of Ephesus that they keep on teaching other people and following what he has taught them. Okay? So, like us, do we pass the baton? We do. How could you pass the baton? How could you do what Paul is doing? Can you pass the baton to someone else? How would you do that? You're going to tell them about Jesus. You're going to share about Jesus. Abigail, can you give it to Emmett? No? (laughs) So, Paul wants us to go out and share the gospel of Jesus with everyone. And that's what he wants the people of Ephesus to do. He wants us to pass it on to other people. Okay? So, Paul knows that his race is just about over in Ephesus because he's going back. He's been on the road for a long time, and he is getting ready to go back home. All right? So, what I want you to remember today is that Paul is passing the baton to each one of us. He wants each one of us to continue telling other people about Jesus and about how he died on the cross for us and how much he loves us and that by inviting Jesus to live in our hearts, we're going to have eternal life. Okay? So let's say a quick prayer, okay? Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for Paul and his teachings. Thank you for these children and their eagerness to learn. Help us to go out this week and pass the baton to those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, have a great week. Amen. You guys can head back to your seats. As I saw the kids facing out for children's chat, it just reminds me of seeing so many of their wonderful faces at Awana midweek, uh, just want to remind you, it's a, it's a great opportunity. If you had a kid that's pre-K through sixth grade, it's never too late to join. We had a bring a friend day at Awana this past week, and we saw plenty of new kids coming, and we hope they come back. But just a great opportunity to get your kids connected and help them to continue to learn about Jesus and learn from his word during the week. We're grateful to have the choir back with us this morning, grateful for Beth Butcher's leadership in that, and we are excited to have them offer up our offertory music this morning. Our offering this morning does go to support the general fund, so as you give, um, the offering will be given 
uh, to support the ministry here at the church, and we want to encourage you to give as you feel led to give this morning. So at this time, I want to invite the deacons to come forward and collect the offering for us.
scripture today comes from Acts 20, verses 17 through 38. For Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both the Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, salvage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will rise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So... Be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed that that by this kind of hard work, We must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together again. Father God, we thank you for the reading of your word. And we thank you now that we have an opportunity to gather around it um, and, and hear what you have to say to us from it. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you give me words to speak and that you open up all of our hearts and minds to what you have to say to us today. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, a couple years ago, I guess it was, I think Ale- uh, maybe it was last year. Oh, time has been kind of crazy these last couple of years. Um, Allie and I had an opportunity to go down to Dayton and watch the show Hamilton, the musical Hamilton live. It was uh, really, really great. Really enjoyed it. Um, there's this one scene about halfway through the second act when uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton, who's, who's serving under George Washington, uh, is called into George Washington's office and, and George Washington, um, lets Alexander Hamilton know that he is not going to be seeking a third term as president, but will be, um, and is asking Hamilton to help him write his farewell speech, his farewell address to the nation. And, and obviously we know from history that that is exactly what happened, right? George Washington chose not to serve a third term, setting the precedent um, that would be then codified uh, 
after FDR uh, served four terms, elected to four terms in the mid-1900s. But in that, in that scene, it's, it's a very powerful message. He's, he, in the, theme, the title of that song that they sing is teaching them how to say goodbye. And if you think about what Paul's doing here in Acts chapter 20, he's, he's kind of teaching the elders in Ephesus. He's teaching all of us how to say goodbye. Now, just throwing this out there, I am not preparing a farewell message today. That is not my goal this morning. But I do want to reflect on Paul's words here and what he had to say to the elders in Ephesus, because I think there's something we all can learn from it. See, Paul had a pretty powerful ministry in Ephesus, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 20. You know from his reference that Anita just read for you that he spent about three years in Ephesus teaching them. Uh, in Acts 19, you can see he spent about three months in the synagogue teaching, and then, as was often the case, he was kicked out of there and went on to begin teaching in the lecture halls on a weekly basis for over two more years. And during his ministry, many miracles were performed and many people came to faith in Christ. And it had an incredible impact on the community. It says in Acts chapter 19 that, that people who were practitioners of magic came and, and they burned their scrolls in Ephesus. And, and it says that the amount of money that those scrolls were worth were up over 50,000 silver coins, which equates to roughly 137 years worth of wages. Think of how much wealth they were giving up as a demonstration of their faith and their commitment to Jesus. On the other hand, there were people in the community that were not too happy about Paul's message. And in fact, the idol makers started a riot because they were losing business. Think about that for just a moment. The people who made false idols were being so economically impacted by Paul's message that they started a riot because they were losing money. Can you imagine what it would be like today? What sorts of businesses would lose money or riot if we were all living Christ-like lives and, and spending our money in Christ-like ways. But that's the kind of impact that Paul had had in Ephesus, a very powerful ministry of teaching, of miracles, and an impact both within the church and in the greater community. And now Paul is determined to go to Jerusalem. He feels called by the Spirit, compelled by the Spirit to go there. And he knows that when he goes to Jerusalem, he's not coming back to Ephesus. Because he knows that when he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested. And it's, those, and it's that arrest that eventually chapters of Acts where Paul is arrested and tried and sent to Rome as a prisoner. And so as he is preparing to go to Jerusalem, he wants to, to say goodbye and impart some, some final wisdom to the elders in Ephesus. Now, before we jump into what Paul actually had to say, I think it's important to pause here and remind you that this message is not just for office holders within the church. The words of wisdom that Paul shares here are not just for pastors or members of consistory or Sunday school teachers or Bible study leaders. Although it is for them, it's certainly true for all of us. Because the thing about spiritual leadership is it's not just confined to particular offices within the church. It's not just for people with titles in front of their name like pastor or elder or Sunday school teacher. We all have a role to play in this. In fact, that's what Paul reminds Timothy in his letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Let me just pull that up for you real quick. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. 
Paul says, and the things that you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust the reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Now, in that one verse, there's four generations of discipleship happening. And it's important to note that Paul says, I've received this message from someone else. So there's the people that told Paul and then there's Paul himself. And then Paul is passing that information on to Timothy. And he's telling Timothy to then pass it on to others. There's four generations of discipleship, four generations of spiritual leadership that Paul is getting at. Paul and Timothy had a, had a pretty special relationship. Paul is kind of an older mentor. Timothy is this young pastor. And in First and Second Timothy, Paul is passing on his, his wisdom to Timothy. But again, we don't have to be pastors or elders or Sunday school teachers to benefit from this. In fact, we all are called to spiritual leadership of one sort or another. All of us in one way are Paul. We have, or I should say, of of Timothy, right? We all have people that we look up to, people that we learn from, people that that have helped us walk with Jesus throughout our lives. It could be your parents. It could be certain teachers or pastors that you have known over the years. It could be a good friend. But we all have people that we look up to in the faith. But we also should all have people that we are trying to minister to, We should all have a Timothy in our lives that we are passing on our spiritual wisdom to, that we are helping to walk with Jesus as well. In other words, we we should all have a Paul that we're looking up to, and we should all have a Timothy that we are trying to lead and lead well. So again, this message is not just for pastors and elders. It is for all of us. You know where our, our first mission field often is? It's in our home. We have a responsibility to our, to our children to help raise them in the Lord, to teach them about Jesus. In fact, that's where Timothy first heard about the Lord. If you looked at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, it says that, that Timothy had, Paul is convinced that the faith resides in Timothy because he first saw it in Timothy's grandmother and his mother as well. Timothy was carrying on a legacy of faith that had begun in his parents, and his parents had taught him to follow I think it's a good reminder on a day like today, on All Saints Sunday, that we have people that we look up to in the faith. Whether it's our parents, our grandparents, could be aunt and uncle, or again, could be good friends. It doesn't have to be blood related. But we all have people that we have learned from and people that have shown us what it means to walk with Christ. And we should thank them and, and be grateful for those people that God has placed in our lives. Again, God has no grandchildren. He only has children. But But it is the testimony and witness and faithfulness of the people that have gone before us that have brought us to where we are today, that help us to then put our own faith in Christ when that time arrives. I can't help but reflect on my own uh, Grandma Lyons, my mom's mom, very faithful. I remember when I was a kid, before I had, you know, really was attending church or really understood what faith was all about. I remember her telling me how she desired that I was baptized, right? She wished that I had, you know, was part of church and, and had been, a, been committed in that way. And I remember thinking, that's just my crazy grandma, right? <laughs> that's just my crazy grandma. Just, I didn't understand any of that stuff. I was too young. I didn't get it. But now I do. Now I understand she's been praying for us, praying for all of us and desiring that we knew the Lord just like she knew the Lord. And I'm grateful for that. So what does Paul actually have to say here to 
the elders in Ephesus? What can we learn from it that we can then implement in our own areas of influence? Again, we are all spiritual leaders, whether officially in in an office in the church or in our own lives in areas of influence. How can we lead like Paul? Well, the first thing we see here is that we must lead with integrity. Paul begins his farewell address by referencing his own life and ministry among the church in Ephesus. He talks about his humility. He talks about how he, he ministered to them with tears amid severe testing, that he proclaimed the gospel publicly and without hesitancy. He talked about his own steadfastness in the face of adversity. He was not greedy and did not seek dishonest gain, but instead helped those who were in need. In other words, Paul lived with integrity. He did not allow his way of life to hinder the message of the gospel that he proclaimed. As spiritual leaders, we must be willing to walk the walk. Let me ask you this. Does the life that you live Monday through Saturday hinder the the faith and the gospel that you've proclaimed to believe on Sunday morning? Does it line up? Do those does your does your life on Monday through Saturday line up with the faith that you proclaim on Sunday morning? We are all called to live lives of integrity. People will notice if there's an inconsistency. Maybe it's your family, maybe it's your coworkers or your neighbors. But people will notice the way you live your life and whether or not it lines up with what you proclaim to believe. Now let me remind you that none of us are perfect, right? None of us are going to perfectly live, it up, live up to it all the time. But, it's, but those are opportunities for us to depend on God's grace to empower us to live for Him and also to overcome our own shortcomings. And so Paul gives his own life as an example. And in doing so, he's essentially saying, follow my lead. He makes that even more clear to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Right? That's, that's discipleship in a nutshell right there, isn't it? Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. In other words, discipleship is not about do as I say, not as I do. But it's about living a life that reflects the truth of God's word that reflects the life of Christ and then inviting others to imitate that life as well. Paul is not boasting here. He's giving his life as an example for the elders to imitate. And we can do the same for others. And one more thing that's important here to note, um, well, two more things I should say before we move on. First of all, when, when Paul's talking to the elders here, right, he's, he's talking to the leaders in the church. Now, later on in the New Testament and, and throughout church history, the idea of what an elder is has developed over time. And, and Paul here, actually later in his letter to Timothy, he writes about the qualifications of elders. It's a, you can find that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7. through 7. I encourage you to read that. As you read through the list, you'll, you'll note that a lot of the qualifications are similar in nature to what Paul was speaking of in his own life. In fact, all of the qualifications in those verses, besides the ability to teach and preach, is directly connected to an individual. Spiritual leaders must lead with integrity and authenticity, and they set the example by the way they live their lives. And now the last one before I move on. Spiritual leaders must genuinely care for those who lead. I love the closing verses of Acts 20 here because of this passage that Anita read for us because it reminds us just how, how much Paul loved this church. 
after saying goodbye, it says they knelt together and prayed and they wept. Anybody who's ever had to say goodbye to someone knows what that's like. Whether that's saying goodbye to a loved one who's about to pass away or moving away out of state to a different home and having to say goodbye to family and friends and coworkers, you know how difficult it is to say goodbye. And the more you love and care for those people, the more difficult it is. Of course, Paul here is simply following in the lead that Jesus, following the example that Jesus set for us. Jesus loved those that he spent time with. I mean, Jesus loved all of us, of course. He wept at Lazarus' grave. He wept over, he wept for Jerusalem because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Jesus offers this invitation to us all. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, Jesus has tender compassion for his people. We are called, and we are called to have that same compassion on those we lead. So we're called to lead with integrity. The second thing that Paul imparts to the elders here is that we're called to preach the word faithfully. Paul emphasized that he always kept the gospel at the center of his preaching and teaching. The core of Paul's message was that all people, both Jew and Gentile, must repent and have faith in Jesus. Right? That's what it's about. That's the core message right there. And he says also that they preach the whole counsel of God, the whole will of God. In other words, all Scripture points to Jesus. All scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, is about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. It's about what God has done for us throughout history, and particularly in the life of Jesus, to save us from our sins. And so we need to be rooted in God's word so that we can know that for ourselves and live it out in our own lives. See, there's there's benefits to us keeping God's word central to to our life and to the way that we lead others. First, we, we, we know the word so that we can know the word. Now, I'm not being redundant there. I'm, let, me, let me explain to you what I mean. We, we know the word. We know God's word. We know the Bible so that we can know the word with a capital W. Jesus is the word. And all scripture points to him. And so we read and study and meditate on scripture, not in and of itself, not just for the benefit of memorizing things, but so that we have a relationship with the one that Scripture reveals, so that we can know Christ and have a relationship with him. And so we know the word in order to know the word. Second, we know, we, keeping, preaching the word faithfully helps us to keep the main thing the main thing. Again, in, in the letters to Timothy, Paul warns him not to get caught up in quarrels over genealogies, over myths, and over controversial speculations. You see, it's easy to get distracted. It's easy to make secondary or tertiary issues the main thing. But when we keep our focus on God's word, it helps us to keep our focus on Jesus. And when we do that, it, keeps, it puts everything else in its proper perspective. Not that those other issues aren't important, but they must find their rightful place under the gospel and, and being understood in light of the life and work of Jesus. And also God's word enables us to live with integrity. God's word makes us able to live for God because it makes his will clear and helps us to live as he intends us to live. When we read and study and meditate on scripture, it helps us to reorient our lives around Jesus. James chapter 1 tells the story of a, of a man who looks in a mirror 
that reading God's Word and, and, and studying God's Word is like looking into a mirror. And we must be doers of the Word, not just hearers of the Word. In other words, we must look into that mirror and see what needs to be changed and change it. That's what God's Word helps us to do. So we must live with integrity as spiritual leaders. We must, pre- must preach the Word faithfully. And finally, we must guard the flock cautiously. Shepherd is a common metaphor for spiritual leadership throughout Scripture, and it's an apt metaphor. Shepherds lead, they provide for, and they protect the sheep. In fact, Peter, in his letter, when he talks about the role of an elder, he calls them under-shepherds, right? That, that idea of caring for the flock. And we must remember that the, shop, that the sheep that God calls us to care for are not our own, right? Whether that's a pastor in the church, whether that's elders in the church, whether that's parents and children, we must remember that the ones that God has entrusted us to are not our own, but they are God's, and that God has paid for, their, paid for them at, with the price of the, the blood of Jesus, that we are stewards of the ones that God has called us to care for, that, that, they are entr- that the flock is entrusted to the shepherd's care. And, and those who lead are ultimately responsible to God for the way that they lead the flock. See, Paul expected to, find, to encounter danger in every city he ministered to, and he experienced it. He was often run out of towns. He was persecuted. He was beaten, left for dead on at least one occasion. And he says that those who oppose his ministry are like wolves. Both Jesus and Paul used wolves as a metaphor for dangerous threats to the church. And we must recognize that they come from both inside and outside the church, right? From inside threats like false teaching and counterfeit gospels, like the prosperity gospel that teaches you that the most important thing in life is is God's blessings and not God himself. From a gospel of works righteousness that says the only way that God, for God to love you is if you obey him. Right? Those gospels are false because they put the emphasis on the wrong thing. They distort the gospel and so lead people astray. There's also threats from outside the church. Secularism and worldly ideology, ideology distract us and confuse us from what truly is the message. The world says that, that we live in a material world, that all you see is all you get. And that when the, this life is over, we just disappear into nothingness. Or there's people that promote sort of hedonism where, where life is all about the pleasure you receive. So, so the pursuit of worldly pleasure is the highest good. Those are all distractions from the gospel. And so leaders must be able to lead well and protect and guide the flock in the truth towards Christ himself. Must be able to protect the flock from dangers. And again, the way we do that is by being grounded in the gospel so that we may know what is true and what is right and what is good and focus on those things. What are some applications from us from Paul's message here? Applications for the church? First of all, we must have confidence in the leadership in the church, both official and unofficial leaders. We must learn to identify and equip leaders who are able to do these things, to live with integrity, to preach the word faithfully, to guard the flock cautiously. And we should be praying for those leaders, both pastoral and lay leaders, on a regular basis. We must learn to keep watch over one another. 
Ephesians 4.29 reminds us, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. We have a responsibility to one another as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, both from any, an official capacity as pastors and elders and leaders within the church, but also to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're called to watch over and protect one another, to point each other towards the truth, the word, to know the gospel. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, I'm passing on to you what is of first importance. In other words, the most important thing is this. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. That's our number one priority. That's what we focus on. And that's also what we remember when we take communion. That Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. We meditate on the fact that through faith we are united with him in his life, his death, and his resurrection. And that if we're united with him, we are also united together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, to just bring us back to what this day represents. Christians throughout all generations have participated in this same act, communion, instituted by the Lord on the night he was betrayed. In churches and in homes across all denominations, Christians have been proclaiming the death of our Lord and their faith in him. Reminded when we take the bread and we take the cup that we are participating in that institution that Christ gave us 2,000 years ago and Christians have been doing ever since then. And so, yes, when we take the bread and we take the cup, we are, we are focusing on what Christ has done for us. And it's, a, in a sense, an individual response to that salvation. But at the same time, it's an opportunity for us to remember that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, that if we are united to Christ, that we are also united to one another. And so when we take this bread and we take this cup, we're we're joining together with all of God's people, past and present and future, in celebrating the salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. Father God, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for the opportunity that we have to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Lord God, help us as we come now to the table to, to remember your salvation. Help us to remember the ways that we have fallen short, that we are all sinners in need of a Savior, that there is no one righteous, not even one. But Lord, that does not disqualify us from coming to the table because you invite us here just as we are. Because it's in you, Lord, that we find forgiveness of sins. It's in you, Lord Jesus, that through your death and your resurrection that we experience salvation. And this bread and this cup are reminders of the price that you paid on our behalf. So, Lord, we come before you now in in your presence and confess our sins to you. And we praise you for your salvation. For reminded that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Amen just a moment, I'm going to invite you all forward for guests with us today. just want to remind you that uh, when we invite you forward, we invite you to come down these side aisles. There'll be two stations on either side of the table to receive the elements. If you're unable to come forward for any reason whatsoever, there'll be a pair of elders that are coming around to deliver communion to you in your pews. Just try to grab their attention any way that you see fit. But we invite you to take the sacrament to your comfort. 
What I receive from the Lord, I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and having broke it, he gave thanks. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So all you who have received Jesus as your Lord and Messiah, we invite you to take this sacrament to your comfort.
is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, broken for you. Feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. In his blood, which was shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, take and drink, knowing that he died for you. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Especially on this day, we're reminded of our brothers and sisters in Christ in this room, around this world, and throughout history, who faithfully served you. We thank you for them and thank you for the salvation that they have and we have experienced in Jesus Christ. I pray now that we would that we would live lives that are honoring and pleasing to you through the empowerment of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to stand as we sing our closing song together.
bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. You may go in peace.